You are tuned into the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and cannabis curious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Thursday, June 9th, 2022. This is episode number 298. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's favorite grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 31,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about Redman ripping on Jay-Z, D.C. lawmakers passing a bill to protect employees from getting fired for a failed drug test, the Treasury Department to start collecting business data from banks, Snoop Dogg changing his ways, what Snoop? Cannabis cannabis eases chronic pain with high doses of THC. All 48 craft cannabis licenses awarded to social equity applicants in Illinois. And many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the guy. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at the Summit of the Americas or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. Shit, what you got for us today, Rico? God damn, I'm ruffled up from yesterday. Yeah, Yeah, it's crazy. So, um, so my story comes from our good friend Steve Bloom at Celeb Stoner. Um, Redman rips Jay Z at Cannabis Expo. Questions what he's doing with the brand. Cannabis industry journalistic legend Steve Bloom attended the CWCBE Expo in New York June 3rd and interviewed National Cannabis Party co-founder. Reggie Noble, a.k.a. Redman, on stage and asked him why he doesn't have his own brand. He even ran through a list of Red's recording artist peers with him, Willie Nelson, Method Man, Jay-Z, Be Real, Wiz Khalifa, and was met with a grimace before an answer. My boy Meth deserves his own brand. Wiz Khalifa deserves his own brand. Jay-Z has never promoted smoking cannabis or anything. I don't know what the fuck he's doing with the brand. I tell it to their face. I'm very transparent. All these stars that think they can just jump in the cannabis industry, make a little money. They don't even have the right linguistics. They say, yeah, I'm about to sell some drugs. I'm like, give me a... I let them know. 
None of them don't know shit about the cannabis industry, but they want to get in the game because they think it's a stepping stone to some more money. And I'm like, fuck that. He went on to say that he's turned down huge endorsement deals from thirsty cannabis companies looking to capitalize on his personal brand with each rejection being guided by God because he's been saving him for a bigger picture. When God tells you you something, you don't have to understand it. You just have to be obedient. And I was obedient. The bigger picture he was talking about, y'all know what it is, the National Cannabis Party. Um, He said he doesn't want to white label shit. He wants to grow the NCP and eventually come out with his own products and be intimately involved in the entire process. um, Instead of following the current flash in the pan blueprint, so many other celebs uh, have been following, much to the disgust of the majority of legacy operators and industry purists. While I personally agree with Redman on every bit of the gospel he was kicking in the interview, I wanted to get a more direct response from someone in the room. So I reached out to my good friend, the legend himself, Steve Bloom, to get a better feel of Redman's energy on the stage and how his message was received. Steve, you on board with this? Yay, Steve. Well, man, Steve, what's happening, brother? Hey there. Good to have you uh, on with us again, man. We miss you. I appreciate you and your work so much, and I'm so glad you could be with us. Uh, You know the format and the clock we're up against here at SOC. So briefly, what were your thoughts on Redman's take on Jay-Z's place in the industry, and uh, how did the East Coast take his shots on celebs looking to cash in quickly by slapping their names and likenesses on white-labeled cannabis products? Well, I was on stage interviewing him. It was a one-on-one interview. Uh, so, you know, I had a big crowd there. Everybody was wrapped watching. And I was shocked when he made that statement. I mean, everybody kind of went, what? You know, um, and, and, you know, nobody really knew where it was coming from. It kind of came out of the blue. Um, I don't know if he has any beef with Jay-Z. I looked it up online. I don't see any particular issues that he's had. They toured together years ago on Def Jam. Um, you know, so they um, they know each other. But I think Red has a problem. And I think other people out there have a problem with celebrities jumping into the game and not really participating in so, so-called white labeling, putting their name on something like the Allman Brothers just jumped in. They're white labeling, white labeling with Verilife. So, you know, people don't have a lot of respect for that. Um, so I, I suppose that's what he was referring to with Jay-Z. Maybe you could tell me more in terms of, you know, where Jay-Z stands in terms of white labeling and, you know, what his real involvement is in the cannabis uh, industry. But I think Red's kind of saying he really didn't say much going into this. You know, Red right. and Be Real and all these other people have said a lot. You know, they've been advocates for a long time. Jay-Z really was kind of quiet. Yeah, and I, and I think it just goes back to, Jay-Z is a mogul. He's a business mogul. And um, he's not really like putting his face per se on it, but he is allowing them to use his name and his likeness to promote uh, the monogram, the $50 pre-roll that's been out here that was um, negatively reviewed by pretty much everybody universally. Um, so uh, I think we go we go into this um, this debate quite frequently here um, at State of Cannabis News Hour, And um, it's, it's, it's really good to see people like Redman uh, people like uh, Exhibit on the ground here, uh, Be Real, and, and there are some artists that do get in the game that do the groundwork. And I know you talked about that in your in your piece too. Um, you got to do the groundwork if you're going to be respected in the industry, at least on the West Coast. I know like in some of the emerging markets, it's easier for them to do that. Um, but uh, Redman's coming from a place uh, where he's speaking from his heart. You got to respect that. Yeah, much more principled. I mean, he started a, a political party. You know, he didn't go into branding. You know, maybe he will down the road. So he's taking a different approach than most. I agree. Enrico, and, and, and can he, I add? It, 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 
One, one second, Gretchen. Um, um, we, we're going to open it up to comments in a second. Um, but um, Steve, is it, is it, I want everybody to check out the Celeb Stoner um, piece uh, that we have linked here. But anything else you wanted to say before, you, um, before we hop to the comments, Steve? I want to thank Gretchen for introducing me. Yeah, Gretchen is the, the, the glue, the East Coast glue connecting the people to the, uh, the people behind the scenes to the people on the ground. I love it. Yeah, I want to tell everybody what a great job Gretchen did at the uh, CWC Expo. She was terrific. Awesome work. Yay. Well, and we were just so happy to have you there and to be able to be there to interview Redman and to to bring him in. We were really appreciative of that. That was a big Um, day. I mean, mean, you know, Eric Adams, the mayor, came on next and told everybody to light up. It was quite a day. (laughs) (laughs) And Enrico, to your comments earlier asking about the tone of the room, I think, frankly, that Redman's comments were well-received. I think that a lot of folks in the audience were legacy, um, and I think they respected someone who says they want to see someone who's been involved in the plant um, and involved with promoting it over the years instead of just someone getting in it for the money. That's excellent. I'm I'm glad to hear that 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 sentiment is being well-received on the East Coast, too. I don't really distinguish too much. I mean, if a celebrity wants to get in, I'm not really opposed to their entrance into the market and how they handle it. I get everybody can say, oh, Seth Rogen does it this way and Jim Belushi does it that way and Jay-Z does it this way. Everybody does it a little bit differently. Maybe some are more in it for the money, but I'm still in favor of all celebrity brands. But in, in Steve, in New York, uh, celebrities can't put their image on their products, right? I'm not sure. They're still making up the rules. That's not decided yet. So this is Rico Lamit, the dopest dad on the street for State of Cannabis News Hour. Um, anybody else want to comment before we move on? Let's keep smoking the news. Let's do it. The industry's longest continuously operating retailer is back in the United States after attending the 70th <laughs> Jubilee for <laughs> last week in the United platinum, Kingdom. Platinum Jubilee, <laughs> Rico. Platinum Jubilee. The platinum Jubilee. <laughs> And he has uh, made a name for himself in the industry by identifying Booth, but also being a man of the people himself, just not of uh, the same political flavor as uh, everybody else. Jason Beck, my man, what you got for us today, man? Well, you know, everyone <laughs> wants to embrace diversity, so the, there's their opportunity to embrace diversity. And, you, and you're all about inclusion, right? I'm all about inclusion. Yeah. You know it, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but nonetheless... My story, I think, is coming out of fucking, that's right, you guys guessed it, fucking Colorado. But it's a much better, I think this is one of the better tales of a Colorado cannabis news story that I've seen in a long time. Because a pot-loving town is trying to change its name to Kush. A tiny pot-loving town in southern Colorado is considering a name change as a nod to the local cannabis culture. According to the Denver Post, the Board of Trustees in Maffet, M-A-F-F-A-T, is discussing a proposal to rename the town to Kush. If you aren't familiar with Kush, it's a slang term for cannabis. It's also a reference to the Hindu Kush mountain range and a variety, a varietal of the plant that comes from there. Maffet with just over 100 residents, is home to many cannabis growers. The idea to rename the town was spurred by Mike Biggio, co-founder of Area 420 in Moffitt. Area 420 is a 420-acre cannabis business park zoned for commercial grows, testing labs, and research facilities. I'm looking to establish this as a world-renowned cannabis region, Bigelow told the Denver Post. 
this would show the town has both feet in on, on this and reflect the new culture here. Some officials say the name change would attract tourists to the area that maybe even bring in new cannabis companies. The town's mayor, Cassandra Fox, is all for the name change, and she says that Moffitt was able to just exist before Area 420 took root five years ago and reinvigorated the whole town's economy. Change is always good, Fox told the newspaper, and the most dangerous phrase is, we've always done it this way. That's the death of a society. Not, not everyone is enthusiastic, though. Town trustee Ken Skolgood said he supports the town's marijuana industry, but he is vehemently against changing Moffat's moniker. Doing so would be an overreach, he said. At this point, town officials are still considering their options. Well, I'll tell you what. I mean, everyone in California always stops in the city of weed and buys the sunglasses that say, I heart weed and buys the t-shirt that says, I went to weed. So I think this is probably a good thing for this small town. It could be a whole new economic boon and a way for them to capitalize off the plant without even actually having to touch it. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. <laughs> this is crazy, man. <laughs> what, what city would you rename to Boof, Jason? Um, I don't think you really want me to answer that question because, <laughs> you know what I mean, I could say a whole bunch of cities. Yeah, Boofer, I, Bakersfield, Boofersfield, Boofsto, you know, Bar... I'll, I'll, and any city that has a crazy progressive uh, a, a district attorney that does not prosecute tri crime, I would consider Boofville. Okay. Let's keep smoking the news. Jason. We're going to Nicole. Uh, thank you so much. That's what I was looking for because I don't see the sheet yet. Is it Nicole Buffon? Our newest addition to the team is coming to the stage next. She's a cannabis patient, plant medicine advocate, and Roz McCarthy's right-hand woman on the left coast for M4MM. Also the founder of Purple Plant Magic, national brand ambassador for Black Buddha Cannabis and the Encyclopedia on Power 88 in Las Vegas, Nevada, every Wednesday morning. It is none other than Nicole Buffum. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jason, for that intro. Good morning, team. My article today is coming from uh, WTTW uh, in Illinois. The article is Illinois' cannabis industry just got a little more diverse and a little more creative. The state has awarded 48 cultivation licenses to craft cannabis growers. And according to officials, 100% of those licenses are going to social equity winners. Representative LaShawn Ford um, of Chicago was one of the co-sponsors of HB 1433. The real long-term goal, he quotes, the real long-term goal of cannabis legalization was never about licenses. It was about healing communities devastated by a racist war on drugs, said Ford. Now the real work begins. We must ensure that these fledging, fledgling businesses have the resources to compete with folks who've been in business for years. Willie J.R. Fleming, the founder of nonprofit Hemp for Hoods, won three licenses for cultivation, transportation, and partner with an infusion. Initially, his applications were rejected. That is until House Bill 1443 was passed in 2021 to expand business opportunities for people who were most impacted by the war on drugs. Fleming had, several t had served time in jail for a marijuana arrest years ago. 
Um, I, I believe JR is in the audience. If we could bring him up real quick, I'd like to go over uh, the timeline that happened in Illinois. This article would have you thinking that these social equity license holders are operational, but they are not and have not been for almost a year now. Here's a timeline. Uh, January 2020, adult use uh, came into play, legalized only for MSOs, though. By July of 2021, when the bill passed, first round of social equity licenses, 40 were issued out only for small craft growers, but none of them received dispensary licenses. Um, in September of 2021, second round, 185 dispensary licenses for social equity were awarded, but not released. Litigation has held up these licenses being operational since last month. In May of 2022, they, the uh, temporary release restraining order was, uh, was let go. Uh, but now there's a new restraining order, a temporary restraining order on the second round of licenses. So even someone like JR, who, is, who has been awarded these licenses, can, is not operational yet because he doesn't have a dispensary that will buy his product. Um, is JR up from the audience? I invited him up, but he needs to accept it. JR, if you would accept. So this is just interesting. What's happening in Illinois, uh, this article would have you thinking that, you know, it's all good, that they're giving out social equity licenses. But what we understand from people on the ground and the activists on the ground is that these licenses have been awarded, but not are not operational. And the people that are suing to hold this up in litigation, they are getting their resources from the MSOs. That's what the people on the ground are saying. Um, so I'm very interested to hear what my colleagues have to say about this article, what your, what your thoughts are. Have you been to Illinois? Um, there, you have not been able to shop at any social equity license holders. Uh, what are your thoughts? First of all, Nicole, thank you so much for not silencing the S because the letter S is important and you cannot silence anyone without the letter S. Illinois. <laughs> Illinois, <laughs> Illinois, you can't, you can't have to say that. <laughs> Thank you, Nicole. Thank you. <laughs> that was perfect. Uh, we've got, we've, sorry, we've got Ingrid up from the audience. Ingrid, did you want to weigh in? Hi, yes, I'm in Chicago, and it is kind of crazy. We've recently been having um, raids on some of our underground parties that have happened here, and this is like our farmer's market. We need people like JR to be operational and for him to have access so that other people can shop elsewhere other than the MSOs. This is Ingrid. That's all I have to say, but we need more competition here. Ingrid, Ingrid, are they giving these applicants retail licenses? Because from no, uh, they're, they're only giving them cultivation. So ultimately, they have to sell their product to an MSO who's just going to fuck them on the price. That's right. And so right now, all the, the the forty small craft grower licenses that were issued out last July are not they they are operational, but they have no one to sell their product to because there are not. Um, the social equity applicants that receive the dispensary um, licenses are not operational because it's being held up in litigation by the MSOs. Doesn't surprise me one bit, Nicole. And then our Chicago Police Department is spending funds on busting underground parties instead of like focusing on let's get the people what they need from all sources. Why is it the jobs police to get the people what they need? What about what about focusing on murder and and real crimes? I'm, 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 I'm all about that. I'm all about that. 
Yeah. I mean, I mean, That's they just ridiculous. had another uh, record amount of shootings just last weekend in Chicago. Yeah, people need more cannabis. They need to chill out. Yeah, Chicago's real fucked up. Living there for twelve years, man, and working with kids in the in the west and south sides of Chicago, like there's a lot of deeply ingrained like fuckery uh, from the, the from the days of uh, Mayor Daley, both mayors, and um, a lot of these uh, chickens are coming to roost right now, unfortunately. We could use funds to help educate children and provide you know people in the neighborhoods that are born into PTSD conditions. They need to be educated about the benefits of the plant. Right. And, and they need access to good medicine and they also need access to, to good nutrition. All those food deserts and um, as a result of redlining um, has been clearly mapped out. Like there's, there's no small solution. Chicago is like fucked for a long time. I'm just going to continue. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. All right. Um, She's a Northern California-based pot-smoking PhD, remaining perpetually optimistic in the midst of cannabis chaos. And come to the stage next, the political economist and founder of Mahajan Consulting, Manika Mahajan. What's your story for us today? Good morning, Rico. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, team and audience. Today, I'm covering a headline from Kyle Yeager in Marijuana Moment, and it relates to the United States government's data collection activities. As we discuss regularly on this show, some members of Congress have been attempting to advance legislation to end cannabis's federal prohibition and to reform banking policies related to commercial cannabis activities. In the meantime, as cannabis remains a Schedule I drug under the Controlled Substances Act, the federal government has in some ways tacitly acknowledged and normalized its existence, and agencies collect and report various data points on the federally illegal industry. Information on the number of financial institutions that work with cannabis-related businesses is already gathered through Suspicious Activity Reports, or SARS, that banks and credit unions are required to submit. The Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, also known as FinCEN, publicly releases that data on a quarterly basis, and its most recent report showed an increase in the number of banks that reported working with cannabis businesses. Last year, the U.S. Census Bureau announced that it would begin collecting and compiling data on revenue that states generate from legal cannabis. Also last year, the U.S. Economic Classification Policy Committee recommended a policy change to include cannabis businesses as an official designation in the North American Industry Classification System, also known as NAICS, which is used to categorize and compile employment and market data on industries across the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. And now... The Treasury's Office of the Office, of, excuse me, the Treasury's Office of the Comptroller of the Cons- Currency—that's a handful uh, or a mouthful—the OCC plans to track cannabis businesses as part of an annual risk summary form (RSF) that needs to be filed by financial institutions. On Wednesday, the OCC posted a notice in the Federal Register, which is the daily journal of the United States government. The U.S. Treasury Department already tracks industries like liquor stores convenience stores, casinos, and car dealers as part of its ongoing efforts to combat money laundering activities. The risk summary form, quote, collects data about different products, services, customers, and geographies, the notice says, adding that the agency intends to start gathering data from banks on, quote, marijuana-related businesses for the first time, in addition to other markets of emerging interest, such as crypto assets and ATM operators. OCC said its money laundering risk system quote, enhances the ability of examiners and bank management 
to identify and evaluate risks associated with banks' products, services, customers, and location. The notice explains that as new products and services emerge, banks have to also evolve their, their evaluation of money laundering and terrorist financing risks. A public comment period on the proposed changes is open through August 8th. You can find a link to the Federal Register Notice and Public Comment Guidelines in this article that's pinned above the stage. We don't yet know how the information collected on the risk summary form is analyzed or disseminated by OCC after being submitted by banks, but the new notice says that, that the data allows the agency to better identify those institutions and areas within institutions that may pose heightened risk and allocate examination resources accordingly. Correspondents and audience members, what upsides and downsides do you anticipate with this new proposed change? Raise your hands to come up to the stage and share your insights. I'm Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. You know, if they want to collect the data, then they better start collecting the money. And that's why we all say, pass safe banking. You know, I mean, this whole thing, they, they want to start collecting more data. We knew that shit was coming really from the beginning. And um, people are going to fight back against this. People are not going to want to be giving up all the information. But at the end of the day, they ha they're going to be able to get whatever the fuck they want. And um, if we don't continue to support each other's businesses, all that data and all that information is just going to be used to help their own businesses and their own efforts when these government controlled dispensaries start popping up all over the nation. So that's my opinion. You think that's going to happen? Fuck yeah. Just like wow. we in the South, in Virginia, we have ABC stores, uh, the, uh, the beverage control stores, and you can't buy liquor on Sundays. Like I wouldn't, I would not be surprised if if, if uh, the same model is taken up in at least a lot of the southern states once federal legalization drops. They still have that. You can't buy liquor on Sunday. <laughs> what the fuck? I would take you on a trip to I would take you on a trip to Virginia, but um, I, I really don't have any interest in going anytime soon. So you think, Rico? Do you think that they'll they'll call those stores the one two three stores, and then they'll have the ABCs and the one two threes? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> oh wow! We need to keep smoking the news. We've got a lot of stories to cover today. Let's do it. You got it, Jason. Of course, I got it. Coming up next, it's a political strategist by day, baker by night. A true female multitask her who can not only bake up a storm but also knows how to make the sausage on Capitol Hill. She's the founder of Panoptic Strategies and our very own Washington Insider. Taking off the apron, it's Gretchen Gailey. Thank you, Jason. <coughs> I'm sorry. Uh, my headline today is coming from uh, NPR. Uh, DC lawmakers pass a bill that would ban firing employees for failed marijuana tests. Uh, the city council in Washington, DC unanimously passed a bill Tuesday that if approved by Mayor Muriel Bowser would stop employers from firing employees who fail marijuana drug tests. The bill named the Cannabis Employment Protections Amendment Act of 2022 would also ban employers from firing or refusing to hire an employee because of their recreational or medical marijuana use. However, there are exceptions. Employers won't be considered in violation of the legislation if they are acting under federal guidelines or if an employee consumed marijuana at work or while performing work-related duties. The bill also prohibits the possession, storage, delivery, transfer, display, transportation, sale, purchase, or growing of cannabis at the employee's place of employment. 
employers must evaluate medical marijuana to treat a disability in the same manner as it would treat the legal use of a controlled substance prescribed by or taken under the supervision of a licensed health care professional. The bill does not cover people working in safety-sensitive occupations, such as police, security guards, construction workers, those who operate heavy machinery, healthcare workers, caretakers, or gas and power company employees. Also excluded from the legislation are employees of the federal government and D.C. courts. It does, however, protect other district government employees. If the bill passes, employers have 60 days to notify their employees of their new rights under the legislation and whether they are designated as safety-sensitive employees. Thereafter, employers must provide the same notice annually and for each new hire. If an employer violates the law, an employee has up to a year from the date of noncompliance to file a complaint with D.C.'s Office of Human Rights. Employers could face fines up to $5,000 and must pay the employee's lost wages and attorney fees. The bill has been sent to uh, Mariel Bowser's uh, desk for approval. If she signs it, the bill will become law after a 60-day congressional review and the bill's publication in the District of the Columbia Register. Um, while I applaud their sentiment, it seems that there are so many damn exceptions to this. I'm really not quite sure at all uh, who this legislation would protect. Um, maybe a guy who runs a hot dog cart on the mall. Um, but almost 35% of the city is employed by federal employees. So that knocks out a good chunk of people. Um, and from everything else, the safety sensitive people, healthcare, heavy machinery, gas employees, I mean, good Lord, police, security cards, construction. Um, I, I, I don't think this bill is going to do very much uh, for anyone. Uh, this is Gretchen for State of Canvas News Hour. Well, it does set a trend. It sets a trend, though. Other government <clears throat> officials will look to it and go, oh, well, if they're do it's cool in D.C., we might as well do it, too. Yeah, but it's a bullshit. I mean, so it sets a cool trend that does nothing. I mean, and it also says that employers who are following federal mandates can still fire people. So it's quite easy for any employer, even if they're not the federal government, but if they're following federal rules, they can still fire people. This bill really does nothing. Let's start with that, and then we'll get uh, D.C. statehood, and that will take care of that. You're not going to get D.C. statehood. That is the pipe dream all <laughs> Yeah, of well, you put that in your like pipe and bill. smoke it, dude. <laughs> I have to. Uh, you you say a lot of stuff. It's a pipe dream. It tastes yeah, fucking whatever. great. Um, it go makes me feel good. I'm sorry. I'm wondering, does Brandon have any, any thoughts on this being an attorney? Uh, I mean, I hear you, Gretchen, that you say that this bill does nothing. I think um, practically that might be very true, although certainly for businesses that are not following federal mandates or there's nothing safety related, um, it's going to create some pressure for those employers to properly document uh, their reasons for termination, which they should be doing anyway. But it creates a little more exposure for them, for somebody claiming they were wrongfully terminated or they were terminated because of their medical or recreational cannabis use that they're legally allowed to engage in off work time. So it's not going to be without implications for employers that are and employees that are operating out of D.C. and not under a federal mandate or a federal business or a safety concern. Thank you for that, Brandon. I'm going to relight the room really quickly. You are tuned into the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. 
It's often attempted to express in the state of Canada's news hour of those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the state of Canada's or its members. The statements made in the state of Canada's news hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the state of Canada's and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any exceptions in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the state of Canada's news hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the state of Canada's or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the state of Canada's or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. So he's the founder of Medican and co-founder of the nonprofit data-driven cannabis research organization, CESC. And his words definitely carry a bit more weight than your average keyboard warrior. Up next is Dr. Jean Talleyrand giving us our daily dose. What you got for us today, Doc? Thanks, Rico. Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. My headline is medical cannabis eases chronic pain, but only if it has very high THC by Corin Wetzel in New Scientist. According to one of the largest review of studies, ingested cannabis products can provide short-term relief of chronic pain. The review shows that products with a high ratio of THC to CBD seem to offer the most dramatic pain reduction. This relief also comes with side effects of nausea, dizziness, and drowsiness. The most common reported use for medical cannabis in the U.S. is pain control. More than 20% of adults live with chronic pain, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Medical cannabis is now seen as a welcome alternative to prescription opioids. Despite growing accessibility and popularity, research on the medicinal effects of cannabis products continues to be limited. Some studies have suggested that medical cannabis can alleviate pain. Dr. Marion McDonough and her team of Oregon Health at Oregon Health and Science University reviewed these studies to see if their combined results show that medicinal cannabis can specifically reduce chronic pain. We wanted to know, would cannabis for treating chronic pain have any kind of similar benefits to opioids? And of course, we really wanted to look deep into the adverse side effects, particularly the more serious ones, says Dr. McDonough. The researchers searched more than 3,000 studies before identifying only 25 that met their criteria. The studies had to last at least four weeks and include different types of pain, like back pain, chronic headaches, and diabetic neuropathy, which causes burning and tingling pain of the hands and feet. Of the 25 studies, 18 compared cannabis products to placebos. None of the studies included products that could be purchased at adult use or lifestyle dispensaries. The analysis, which included more than 14,000 participants, revealed that some cannabis products do, do provide mild to moderate relief of chronic pain, and specifically those with a high ratio of THC to CBD are most likely to reduce pain. On the other hand, there was no significant improvement in pain for those products that had a low THC and high CBD ratio. There's so much noise out there about CBD really being able to treat pain, says McDonough. This might help down the road to clarify whether that's true or not. Right now, there's just not enough evidence. The people that felt the greatest benefit were those with neuropathic pain, the kind of nerve pain that causes the burning and tingling. As usual, the researchers note that although the study is suggestive, the results are based on limited evidence and that study, further studies are needed. Also, most of the trials they reviewed studied cannabis use from one to six months. More studies are needed to determine if there's relief past six months. They plan to keep reviewing studies and provide quarterly reports. 
Looking at the content of cannabis products as ratios rather than the single concentration of THC or CBD is novel. Research are finally getting it. Uh, cannabis is a multi-agent botanical. The entourage effect or synergy may rely on a combination of effects from multiple active product ingredients. A lot of my patients have tried CBD for chronic pain. Those who have previously tried THC eventually go back to it. There is some belief that an equal amount of THC to CBD relieves chronic pain the best, and this study did demonstrate moderate improvement for products with comparable amounts of THC to CBD. However, according to this study, the higher the THC to CBD ratio for chronic pain, the better. This is Dr. Talleyrand reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I have a question, Doc. Are they only, in this research, was it only using um, isolated cannabinoids? Nothing was done with full spectrum? Full spectrum was included. Uh, they basically rated their products on the ratio of THC to CBD, though. Some of them were isolated. Some of them were extracts of plant. Um, and some of them, you know, were, were from high THC plants, high CBD plants. Okay, got it. Thank you. It's, it's so complicated. I, there's so many compounds, and we, we're just beginning to understand the entourage effect. Um, it, it, it's, you know, we've got a lot of research to do. I agree, Susan. And also, some of our research is showing it depends on the person, you know, whether you have tolerance or even maybe your genetic makeup and metabolism, how you respond to these different compounds. And, Doc, in your experience, um, it, would you, like, have someone who's managing, trying to manage chronic pain, would you have them try an isolate product first or a full-spectrum product first? You know, I really... Uh, uh, you know, tell them to choose whatever they can have access to and will work from from there. I hate to tell a person where to start uh, because I found that it does vary from from uh, patient to patient. I, you know, I, I prefer natural products because I believe synergy uh, could help. And I think this study is showing that synergy can help. It's just that you're looking at higher THC to C CBD synergy than CBD to THC synergy. Thank you for this article. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank no Thank you for the article. I, I appreciate Incredible. it. Uh, I certainly was not involved in this study, but I can echo its results that, uh, you know, taking an edible that's about 98% THC that has other cannabinoids in it is a great way uh, an effective way to manage chronic pain. I do it every day. There you go. And Dr. Talleyrand, would you agree that dosing is uh, complicated when it comes to big pharma too? I mean, we're our bodies are all different, and and just trying to say you need X amount of milligrams of uh, codeine or whatever it is, it, you know, everybody's different. I Completely. Uh, Big Pharma has not addressed multi-agent products. That's really, they are good at single agent uh, discovery, but they need to have a paradigm shift to really look at multiple ingredients as is found in, in plants. And so they've got some work to do.
Yeah, so whenever it's whenever it's mentioned in an article, a story, a room, uh, when people start to complain about how dosing is difficult with cannabis, we need to use that argument. Thank you for that, Dr. Talleyrand. Well, that- I just wanted to add to Dr. John's point that you know, when, when you're dealing with plant medicine, the, these uh, var- variable um, ingredients or components, the same thing with, with psilocybin, the, the mushrooms, it's not just psilocybin, there's other compounds, so is that moves towards this pharma model. We have to be uh, aware of that same thing. There are other compounds that, like, in the shamanic tradition, they're, they're looking for certain elements that, that are sort of an entourage effect with that, so it'll be an issue with, uh, with fung- fungi as well. Absolutely right. A lot of the studies coming out on psilocybin are only looking at one ingredient, uh, but then trying to translate it to the whole fungus. And, and that's that's not the way to go. You've got to really look at the whole plant. Also, too, um, on the pharma- pharmaceutical drug side, uh, pharmaceutical drugs only actually help 10, each pharmaceutical drug only helps 10% of the population that that drug is advertised to treat. Wowza. Okay. Let's keep smoking the news. All right. Here we go. Coming up next, if Bono had an anaconda, his name would be Eric Hesloreda. But Bono doesn't have an anaconda because he has a stun double named Eric Hesloreda, known for his good deeds and being a true steward to the outdoor plant. This freedom-fighting farmer's friend and Bono's, not to mention an award-winning writer, journalist, event producer, and content ninja. Here to give you two it straight, it's Eric Hesloreda. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate the intro. Hey, everybody. Great to be here today. My headline is from Atlas Obscura, and it's thousands of years ago, artists documented their world on rock walls, including perhaps ritual use of hallucinogens. So I was reading this uh, yesterday, I wanted to share it with you guys because I think it's kind of a cool uh, story. It reads sort of like an Indiana Jones of mushrooms. Uh, jumping in, a Land Rover speeds across an almost lunar landscape, sending plumes of dust skyward in its wake. Knocking around in the back seat, Giorgio Samarini snaps photos of eerily eroded sandstone formations. The year is 1988 in the place is Tassili Ager in the Algerian Sahara. It is a, rem- a remote location with a well-deserved reputation for mystery, particularly regarding some of the extensive prehistoric art found in natural rock shelters scattered around its cliffs of orange-red rock. When I first saw the paintings, I felt like my life had entered a new phase. I've never been the same, recalls Samarini, an Italian ethnobotanist, an independent researcher who studies psychoactive plants and fungi. Archaeologists have documented about 15,000 drawings and engravings in the Tessili Ager region, which is designated by UNESCO as a World Heritage Site, and is one of the most important collections of cave art in the world. Over millennia, prehistoric artists painted or carved a menagerie of animals, wild and domesticated, as well as plants and people involved in hunting and other daily activities. But there are also depictions of something much stranger, the round heads, quotes, humanoid figures with oversized heads who appear to be flying. Dated from 9500 to 7000 BC, the images of levitating people, as well as masked shaman figures with large mushrooms sprouting from their bodies, may be the earliest depictions of the ritual use of psilocybin-producing psychotropic mushrooms, according to Samarini. The art on the cave walls of Tassili Ager, he notes, was created during a period of time when the Sahara was a temperate savanna. 
We know that various species of psilocybe grew in the area at this time, says Samarini. To imagine that people who created these artworks were not aware of them isn't realistic. They live nomadically with probable encyclopedic knowledge of the flora and fauna of the area in order to survive. Depictions of mushrooms and rock art is not unique to, to Tassili Ajer. Imagery has been found in caves from Tanzania to Siberia, where figures sport large mushrooms as caps, says ethnomycologist Brian Ackers. Ackers has written extensively about psychotropic mushrooms throughout human history, including the, as a co-author of a 2011 paper published on Spain's Selva Pascuala Cave, where artists painted mushrooms as well as bulls and other animals. He sees, he sees his field's ongoing debate about what prehistoric mushroom art represents in a philosophical light. Ackers notes that since many other aspects of cave art are interpreted as historical records from types of flora and fauna to hunting techniques, fungi also likely had some meaning to prehistoric people around the world who included them in their art. These are likely cultures in which the role of the psychedelic effects of the mushrooms are deeply integrated right at the center of their culture. Sam Marini agrees, adding, mushrooms are a low-calorie food and many species are highly poisonous, even deadly, so it's unlikely that painters would have glorified them on cave walls unless they had another, more ritualistic purpose. Sam Marini's psychedelic mushroom theory is, hasn't gained much traction among researchers, but he's undeterred. In the decades since his Land Rover first sped across the Algerian desert, he has expanded his mission, compiling evidence of a range of mind-altering drugs ancient humans may have used. We have evidence of humans experimenting with all sorts of intoxicants for thousands of years, Sam Rini says. Our prehistory is probably much more, a, a much more experimental time. So it sounds like prehistoric people's party was pretty lit, and it's no wonder we're still exploring the boundaries of our consciousness with plant medicine and finally tuning in and growing numbers to ancestral knowledge. And that's what I got for today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Gracias for having me up. Whenever I hear stories like this, I think about what it means to be written in stone. You know, they had, they had to really think about what they were going to do and, and what, they, what they wanted to say. Nowadays, look at me, I sound like nanograms right now, <laughs> but we, we, we just, you know, blast something out on Twitter before we even think about it. And, you know, it's, we've just really, we need to be more thoughtful it's really moving to see cave art. If, if anyone has ever experienced it, it's like walking into a, a, like the Sistine Chapel. It is incredibly moving. And these places are very inaccessible and they're very deep. So you have to realize this is 10,000 years ago, or whatever, and these are pitch black and they're having to use tallow and things to burn it. But when, you, when they turn the lights on and you see these things, it, it is transformative. It, you'll never be the same, I'm serious. Yeah, we, we need to keep moving because we've got three more stories. Let's do it. So this Wisconsin-rooted, Fresno-based raptivist is repping the strong black conservative voice mainstream media and Joseph Robinette Biden does not want you to know exists, but the haters and race baiters will not block out the black side of liberty constantly exposed by my good friend, Nicholas Wildstar. And I know you had a rough run in the, um, in the election this week, man, but we still got your back through and through, and can't wait to hear your story today. Nick, what you got for us, my man? Appreciate that, Rico. Well, puff, puff, pass, my state of cannabis cohorts, but you can skip on handing off to Snoop Dogg since, his, since he says he's changed his ways. 
Snoop Dogg strolled the red carpet at the MTV Movie and TV Awards earlier this week without a joint in hand, a rare sight for the longtime cannabis advocate and aficionado. I ain't smoking tonight, Snoop told reporters via MSN. I'm trying to abide by the law, quote unquote, whatever that means. It was just a few months ago when cameras caught the rap legend burning a joint before his Super Bowl 56 performance. Though the award show was hosted in California, where recreational cannabis has been legal since 2018, smoking in public places and at most private venues can still result in fines. I've changed my ways. I've become better, Snoop Dogg said this week. If that's the case, Snoop's personal blunt roller, who reportedly earns $50,000 a year, might be facing an uncertain future. In 2019, Snoop Dogg said that he smoked up to 81 blunts a day, which is about one blunt every 12 minutes during waking hours. More recently, the dog father said he knocked Pete Davidson's wig off in a celebrity stoner deal uh, duel. Snoop Dogg credited Davidson for doing his best to keep up. He fights and he fights and he fights. Then he says, hey, man, I'm cool, Snoop said on an episode of E's Nightly Pop. Perhaps Snoop Dogg is following in the footsteps of other noted celebrity stoners who have taken a temporary reprieve from the plant, including Woody Harrelson and Willie Nelson. The only person who's ever smoked out Snoop Dogg. Nelson was also the person who got Harrelson smoking again, revealed Harrison during a 2018 interview with Ellen DeGeneres. I quit for almost two years. No smoking, no vaping. Every once in a while, you're going to have something edible. Let's be real. I'm not a nun, Harrelson said. But after winning a poker hand against Nelson, Harrelson caved after Nelson handed him a Willie's Reserve vape pen. I take a big draw of it, and he says, welcome home, son, Harrelson recalled. Nelson himself, however, has slowed down when it comes to inhaling. I've abused my lungs quite a bit in the past, so breathing is a little bit more difficult these days, and I have to be careful, Nelson told fans during a sold-out 2019 show at the Majestic Theater in Texas. I don't smoke anymore. I will take better care of myself today. However, Nelson's son, Lucas, later clarified that while the mode of consumption has changed for his father, he hasn't completely stopped enjoying the plant. Between vaping, edibles, gummies, drops, etc., I think it's safe to say Willie will never stop enjoying Mary Jane, Lucas tweeted. Reporting with the State of Cannabis News Hour, this is Nick Wildstar, a.k.a. the governor that says fuck the government and all of its bullshit laws. Speak now or forever hold your peace. Smoke think, weed think, every day. Every day. I think, I, every day. I think Snoop is just um, is just mad because he got caught on camera smoking at the, at the um, game. And so now he's making it clear. His lawyers are probably like, you can't be caught in public smoking. What, what sense does that make? That doesn't make any sense. Snoop Dogg has zero cannabis licenses. There's nothing for him to lose from smoking in public as part of his whole mystique and what he's been doing forever. So I, this makes absolutely zero he's sense. He's an executive now. He's not just a rapper. Not, not, get the, he's, get he's the, the hell out of here. Get the hell out of here. He's a corporate weed-smoking executive then. Get the hell over yourselves, people. You know, Snoop Dogg turned 50 this past year. I've noticed in, in patients that there's this, uh, you know, in the first five years of smoking, there's this increase in use and then tends to plateau off in the next five years and then slightly decrease in, in the last five years. So maybe he's just on the decline in terms of use. He's just listening to Rick Caruso. That's the problem. <laughs> 
I think it really sucks. He likes weed. He should smoke. What? I mean, what, what did he just say? Did he say that smoking weed is bad? No, he didn't say that. He just said he's not smoking tonight. He's being a good boy? He's lying. Because he's, he... Go ahead. Straight up. Straight up, he's lying. <laughs> Maybe boy. he's just signaling that he's not promoting actively and blatantly breaking the law in terms of smoking consumption. I mean, we all know that he consumes weed on a regular basis. And yeah, he was... He was photographed and videotaped doing it at the Super Bowl. Was it, was it legal for him to do it there? Technically, no, but he's, he's relatively untouchable. Why wasn't it legal for him to do it there? He was in Los Angeles. And it's not even a misdemeanor. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that, 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 that's ridiculous. Yeah. There, there, there's, no, there's no legal consequences for him smoking weed at the Super Bowl. Maybe sponsorship... Uh, uh, different things, but that doesn't even make sense anyway because he smokes fucking weed all the fucking time. Doesn't make no sense. It'll be interesting to see any follow ups on this and the next time we see Snoop smoke weed well. every day. I, I'm willing. I do, I do believe. I think this article. I do believe a few years back he he did the same thing and said that he was no longer going to be smoking. But um, I think like a month later he emerged as a Rastafarian by the name of uh, Snoop Lion. I think this piece is nothing more but than fake news, and I think it's actually prohibitionist marketing that they're going in there and saying that Snoop isn't smoking what? weed. Yeah. yeah. Jason just made up a conspiracy. Exactly. It's a whole <laughs> plot. Follow the money. So Project Snoop Sam didn't really do. <laughs> oh my God. Really? You are fake news. Wow. Okay. Shall we move? All right. Coming up next. She's an attorney at law focused on bridging the gap between cannabis entertainment and psychedelics coming next to the stage is the founder of the cannabis blog and podcast shall we talk it's shalina panu thanks so much jason good morning everyone my name is shalina and my headline for today is psilocybin phase two clinical trial shows promising results for binge eating disorders pr newswire reports on tripped therapeutics results of their first patient dose in its phase two clinical trial for the treatment of binge eating disorders binge eating disorders occur when a person has recurring episodes of eating large quantities of food and feeling unable to stop it affects nearly four million women and two million men in the u.s alone with not many options for effective treatment available. As stated on PR Newswire, Trip Therapeutics is a clinical stage biotechnology company focused on developing psilocybin-related molecules, including TRP8803, for the treatment of diseases with unmet medical needs through accelerated regulatory pathways. TRIP's Psilocybin for Neuropsychiatric Disorders program is focused on the development of synthetic psilocybin-related molecules as a new class of drug for the treatment of binge eating, chronic pain, and other indications. The company has begun enrolling patients in its Phase two trial for the treatment of binge eating disorder at the University of Florida and recently announced an upcoming Phase two a clinical trial with the University of Michigan to evaluate TRP8802 for fibromyalgia. Uh, TRP-8803 is a propriety uh, psilocybin-based product that uses a novel formulation and route of administration to potentially improve efficacy, safety, and the patient experience. STOP, which is the study treatment of overeating utilizing psilocybin tribal, is evaluating TRP-8802 in patients with uh, a binge eating disorder. 
and represents the first use of psilocybin in conjunction with psychotherapy as a therapeutic intervention in patients with BED. PR Newswire states the following, beginning immediately following the post-using integration session with the trial psychotherapist and persisting throughout the four-week time period post-dosing, the first patient in the STOP trial exhibited reduced overall anxiety, reduced anxiety around food, reduced compulsion to overeat, and improved self-image and confidence. These positive changes in behavior translated to significant weight loss at four weeks. Weeks. The observed behavioral improvements are consistent with those described in other clinical studies examining the clinical benefit of psilocybin as a therapeutic intervention in neuropsychiatric disorders. In addition, it is important to note that there were no drug-related adverse events observed during the four-week period following dosing of TRP-8802. Pursuant to the STOP trial protocol, patients will be monitored for an additional eight weeks post-dosing. They further stated TRP-8802 is the predecessor to TRIP's lead psilocybin-based drug candidate, TRP-8803. TRP-8803 includes, includes a unique formulation and delivery system and is designed to enhance the positive effects of psilocybin and psilocybin-related compounds while markedly reducing the limitations of psilocybin dose through other routes of administration. In combination with psychotherapy, TRP-8803 is intended to serve as a treatment for certain uh, neuropsychiatric disorders, including BED. TRIPT is utilizing TRP-8802 to evaluate the use of psilocybin-related compounds in certain neuropsychiatric disorders in early-stage trials. If initial, if, uh, um, initial efficacy is shown, TRP-8803 will be studied in future trials what are your thoughts on the results of this clinical trial? My name is Shalina, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Shalina, I might have missed it, but are they also making it uh, a, a shorter trip? Uh, they didn't you say know? that. I don't think so. I'm not sure. I wonder why the psilocybin stocks uh, tanked so hard. Because this all sounds so great, you know? Because there's nowhere for them to operate, so there's nowhere for their stock to go up because it's all just you can't do it anywhere yeah it's all medical that's why but the potential and it's all speculation it's all speculation it's, yeah exactly too. it's all it's so. all speculative it's all fucking pipe dreams right now like this shit is not fucking going yet you guys well oakland and portland are coming on stream so i mean there is going to be there there is going to be uh implementation on some mm -hmm. level it's not totally a pipe dream. To totally yeah. agree totally i actually totally agree with you on that eric i mean even in west hollywood I talked with, with John Erickson, and, and he's introduced a piece of legislation to decriminalize psychedelic mushrooms in West Hollywood. So, yeah, it, it is I mean, it's there, not but a there's dream. no way for these companies to really do commerce. It's going to happen. It, it, it is a dream. It's a dream now. It's happening. It's in the infancy stages, but it's not a reality yet. And the name of your mushroom store again, Jason Beck? Shrooms on Sunset. That's right. Well, we've reached the top of the hour. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, you can catch it anywhere you get your podcasts a couple hours from now. Please subscribe and leave us a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that come through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Jaja Simone Brown. Thank you, audience, for being an important part of our show. You've had your daily dose. Now go out there and make a difference. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific time, for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Bye. <laughs> so that one.
what are you still doing here? The show's over. You just don't want to leave, do you? I know. We love you, too. Help us grow by grabbing some of our merch. We've got hats, bags, hoodies, water bottles, all the standards. It would really mean a lot. Go to justsaycare.org backslash shop today. Really, I mean it today. With the supply chain issues, you might get it by Christmas. The good news is that inflation will be so bad, you'll be locked into a low, low price. Remember, justsaycare.org. Thanks. Okay, go listen to another podcast. Bye.